New York City has long come to life during the holiday season. Between the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree and the elaborately decorated holiday windows at stores like Macy's and Saks Fifth Avenue, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas in the Big Apple, even in the midst of a pandemic. But until the late 19th century, it wasn't Christmas, but rather New Year's that generated the most excitement in New York City. They had a tradition of making calls on New Year's Day and visiting their neighbors and their friends and their business associates, and the men would all go out and about dressed in their best. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. This week we're talking with Anthony Belov. He's a longtime volunteer and board member of the Merchant's House Museum, the only 19th century family home in New York City preserved intact, both inside and out. Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. George, it's a pleasure to be here, absolutely. So first and foremost, is the Merchant's House Museum open during the pandemic? Yeah, the Merchant's House Museum has reopened. Uh, We're open weekends now for limited groups, five or less, uh, reservations in advance, of course. And uh, there are tours every hour on the half hour. And um, it's all very controlled and very tight. Uh, but response has been great, and there's a lot of people who are very happy to know that they uh, can get back into the Merchant's House and visit it and visit the Treadwells again, yes. Yeah, the Treadwells. When you walk through the doors of the Merchant's House Museum, you are traveling back in time. You are immediately transported to the 19th century into the home of the Treadwell family. Tell us about the history of this museum and the folks who lived in this house. It's a very multifaceted situation because we're dealing with a house that represents an era and not anything specifically historically important that happened there. So many historic houses are about, you know, George Washington slept here, John Adams had dinner here, Alexander Hamilton, whatever. Uh, And at the Merchant's House, it's it's really just a set of, of, it's, it's a situation of happenstance, why it, it still exists. It was a house that was developed by a man who was speculating in real estate, who built a couple of houses right next to each other with the intention of selling them to basically extremely wealthy people who were all relocating from other parts of the city uh, to this Bond Street area, as it was called, a very exclusive neighborhood that was targeted for a specific specific financial class of people. It's the first time anything like that had really ever happened in New York. Uh, earlier than this, we're talking the 1830s, the 1820s. Earlier than this, uh, you built your mansion right next door to a bar or a stable, and it's just the way it was. But uh, John Jacob Astor, who owned all of this land, saw the potential for developing a neighborhood that was targeted specifically to the very wealthy. Uh, He cut uh, Lafayette Place at the time through from uh, Art Street, which is now Astor Place, down to Great Jones Street, and then Bond Street below that and Bleecker Street below that. These were streets where the very wealthy lived in, in the kind of houses that everybody else just dreamed of moving into. You know, if they ever, were able to achieve that level of financial success. And so in 1832, a man named Joseph Brewster built the house. I guess he liked it enough to live in it for three years himself, 
but ultimately he sold it to Seabury Treadwell, who was a very successful hardware merchant, a hardware importer, who was retiring at the time. He was 55. Where had he been before that? Was he native to New York? Uh, okay, yes. Yeah. Seabury was born in Manhasset, and he had a couple of brothers as well who all ultimately emigrated to New York City from Long Island to seek their fortunes. Uh, his father was a successful doctor in Manhasset, and one of his relatives was Bishop Seabury, who figures uh, so prominently in Hamilton. So uh, his, his ancestry, his father was a loyalist. We don't know Seabury's politics in particular, but uh, he did leave around the age of 18 to 20, somewhere around there, at the very end of the 18th century to seek his fortune in New York City. There was no Manhattan in those days. New York City was Manhattan. This is you know, before the, 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 the five boroughs. And uh, he did very, very well for himself. Uh, he did not marry until later in life. He was 40 when he married the daughter of the woman uh, in whose boarding house he was living. And I guess he decided it was time to you know, settle down. And they lived in a couple of houses before the one on 4th Street. They lived very briefly uh, in Cedar Street, which is just north of Wall Street. This was when the area was still very residential. And then they bought a, a very nice house on Day Street, uh, really just around the corner from uh, St. Paul's, right, uh, right off of City Hall Park. And they lived there for uh, about a decade until, and, and the big problem in those days in particular was that commerce and, and business kept encroaching in uh, residential neighborhoods. So you could move into on the finest block in the finest neighborhood in the city. And five years later, there was a barbershop on one side of you and uh, you know a, a tannery on the other side of you and, and stores across the street. So the, uh, those who could afford to keep relocating were constantly being pushed up the island because that's really the only place you could go on a long skinny island. And when he bought the house in 1835, the, what's now the Merchant's House on uh, 4th Street, he probably figured this was it. You know, it's, it's not gonna get any better than this. Commerce will never reach this far up the island. It's kind of incredible to think that from their rear windows in the 1830s, they were basically looking over cow pastures and farms because uh, the city had been opened up as far as Union Square, but there was nothing there yet. Uh, and, and, and from the family saga, uh, it, it's just so interesting to imagine what they as a family witnessed as the area around the house just changed and changed and changed. But the reason, well, the reason they're still there, we don't know. When everybody else was moving further north and the area around Union Square first opened, and then people were moving to Gramercy Park and people started moving up Fifth Avenue. And for some reason, the Treadwells stayed. We don't know why. Uh, when Seabury died in 1865, he was 85 years old. They were still living on 4th Street when most of their neighbors had either moved or were saying, it's time to get out of this neighborhood. And they just stayed put, even though they could have afforded to, to move elsewhere. So who, Anthony, are the they besides Seabury and his wife? Who else lived in the house? Well, who else lived in the house depends on what year we're talking about. 
they had eight children. Uh, the oldest of them, Elizabeth, was born uh, very shortly, you know, just a year or so after they married in 1820. And uh, they had Elizabeth, they had Mary, they had Samuel, they had Horace, they had Phoebe, they had Julia. Uh, when they moved to Fourth Street, um, Mrs. Treadwell just had had Sarah a few months prior to that. And then five years later, the final of the eight, Gertrude, was born, the only one of the children to be born in the house on 4th Street. But then at a certain point, Elizabeth married, she moved in with her husband, and they had a couple of grandchildren in the house. Uh, and then Mary Adelaide and her husband moved into the house at a different point because they were getting themselves established. They were building houses elsewhere. Their husbands were um, cementing themselves in business. So it was pretty traditional for families of this uh, caliber to all move in together and share domicile for a while, while, while the children and in-laws were getting established. Uh, people ask me all the time, how big is the house? And I say, well, it's an 11 bedroom, zero bathroom house. Uh, so there were plenty of bedrooms, but you know, since there was no running water in the day. Uh, but in the 1855 census, we have 18 people registered as living in the house. And that includes four Irish servants because a house like this, anybody who's been there can appreciate this. A house like this certainly did not run itself. And the girls, even though I'm sure they helped with housekeeping and were involved in it, there was backbreaking, you know, strenuous labor involved in running a house like this. If nothing else, just carrying the coal up from the cellar and, and, and filling all those fireplaces with coal, those buckets were heavy. And it took pretty much nonstop work to keep a house like that running. The servants lived on the very top floor of the house, correct? Yes, that is correct. The servants lived on the top floor there. This is a federal style house. So this was really before the era when flat roofing technology was, was reliable. So they were still building houses with peaked roofs. And you see a few in the city to this day. And generally the rule of thumb is if you see a house, um, a row house, you know, a, a townhouse with a peaked roof and dormer windows sticking out of it, it's either a federal house from the early 19th century or it's a federal revival house when the style came back in in the early 20th century. And so the servants lived in a couple of the dormer uh, rooms up on the top floor. They would have been really cold in the winter and really hot in the summer. It's actually my favorite space in the house. It, it's just a, a beautiful space because there's a huge central room up there, just you know, pretty much underneath the peak of the roof, uh, flooded by light from a skylight. And then there's two rooms to the front and two rooms to the back. And there's a little staircase, uh, which leads up to the trunk room, which is the very, very, very peak. You can't even fully stand up in that space. Uh, actually, on the, on the video I produced for the Merchant's House earlier this summer, um, one of the Behind the Ropes tours, I take everybody up into that space. So um, you can see that space on the video. And it's, if I had to pick an apartment in that house, you know, that so many row houses have been broken up into apartments now, 
even with all the stairs, that's the space I would pick because I just think that's a sensational space. But you need central heat and you need air conditioning. Anthony, take us back to the 19th century and daily life. Take us back to this time of year in the 19th century. What would life had been like at this house at this time of year during the holiday season? Well, I'm really glad that you um, qualified your question by saying in this house, because it would have really varied, of course, a great deal, depending on your financial status. Uh, and just the way it does at any time. In a house like this, uh, the men were all working. Uh, Seabury was retired, but he still remained very active. Uh, he invested in railroads, he invested in real estate in Manhattan and in Brooklyn. Both of his sons were working. His sons-in-law were working too. So there was income coming in. And the, uh, the, the women of the family, their job was basically to make sure that the house was running, running efficiently, running properly, that the, the men were comfortable, the women were comfortable. They were the ones who were overseeing the servants. And at this time of the year, they would have been gearing up, but not so much for Christmas. Uh, in New York, they would have been gearing up for New Year's because until the late 19th century, New Year's Day was the holiday that New Yorkers preferred. And this goes back way to the 17th century during Dutch times. Uh, the Dutch had a tradition, that, mind you, this was a much smaller city in those days, but they had a tradition of making calls on New Year's Day and, and visiting their neighbors and their friends and their business associates. And the men would all go out and about dressed in their best. Uh, and in those days, in the Dutch days, you could pretty much cover the whole city on foot in the matter of maybe an hour or so. But this tradition uh, continued right through the English uh, times and, and well into the 19th century and was reported on by a lot of national papers and magazines who talked about this very quaint custom that really occurred in New York and just the surrounding area, a throwback to Dutch times. And uh, people in New York really looked forward to that. Uh, and it got, uh, the reason we don't do it anymore is because after a while, first of all, the city just got too big. And a, a tradition, a holiday where you went and just dropped in on all your neighbors and friends and imbibed in some punch and some oysters and, and turkey and ham and what have you, it just got totally out of hand. It became unmanageable. And then people who were, shall we say, less than desirable also took up the habit and it was a chance for them to sort of gate crash and see how the other half, meaning the 1% lived. And by the 1880s, which is long after the time that we interpret the house, but uh, by the 1880s, it just ceased to be and families who were still in a position to be able to open their doors and, and offer free lunch to anybody who walked in, just sort of made it known that they were not going to be in and they were probably elsewhere on New Year's Day. So the custom died out. But the women would have been hard at work. You always wore a new outfit. Uh, on New Year's Day, they would be embroidering special aprons. They would be ordering from caterers. They're, they're, the, the cook down in, in the kitchen would already be thinking about what she was going to prepare. And the men would be sort of cementing their social and business relationships. 
drawing up their list of who they'd be visiting on New Year's Day. Uh, so there was a good month of preparation in advance so that the house would be gleaming. But this was the time of the year that if you knew you were planning on redecorating, which the Treadwells did, you would probably time it so that you'd have your new furniture, your new paint job, whatever, uh, all done and in place for a kind of a New Year's Day unveiling. So your neighbors could come in and say, ooh, ah, the Treadwells uh, redecorated their front parlor uh, around 1855 when they installed gas in the house. The, the house did not have gas when it was built, gas light. And uh, they installed a, a suite of right cutting edge, right up to date uh, Rococo revival furniture, which now is like the height of ostentatious, you know, Victoriana, but it's what everybody was buying in the day and their beautiful late federal and empire Grecian style furniture had just become old fashioned and passe by that point. They still had some unmarried daughters. So we can assume that that may have been some of the motivating factor for it, but they, they were entertaining. They did the people, their neighbors were the Delanos and the Roosevelt's and the Skirmahorns and the Astors. And so they needed to keep up, you know, with the Joneses, Great Jones Street was just a block away. So they redecorated and one wonders if maybe they redecorated just in time for New Year's Day so they could unveil the new suite of furniture. Christmas was not the big deal it became later on. And, and we have Charles Dickens to thank uh, for popularizing Christmas the way it became and which is a lot of fun. Uh, we're doing a Christmas Carol at the house again this year. It's gonna be virtual, it's gonna be online, but we have a, a fantastically talented actor named Kevin Jones, who has been portraying Christmas Carol for the last, this will be the eighth season he's done it. And he uses Dickens's uh, original uh, script. Dickens traveled the world uh, in a one man show portraying the 26 characters in the script from A Christmas Carol. And so Kevin uses that script and, and it's become part of the holiday tradition for a, a great number of people who we're gonna miss this year because we have people who come in as far away as Maryland and Boston who come to New York every year and build a visit you know, to see the windows and the tree and all that with a visit to the merchant's house to do A Christmas Carol. So that will be online this year, but uh, I'm happy to say that that's, that's gonna be happening. But you won't be able to sit in an authentic, intact 1855 parlor and experience Charles Dickens standing there in front of you, you know, just doing the whole thing. But we're doing the best we can to keep the house in people's minds and, and keep our traditions going. You mentioned gaslighting in the house when the Treadwells put in gaslighting. You have another event coming up, a virtual event, in which you will be talking about 19th century domestic lighting, right? Indeed. that uh, The video that I produced for the house will launch on December 2nd. And somebody just asked me the other day, uh, so what's this video about? And I said, lamps. And they said, cool, that should be fascinating. And I just, I sort of thought they were like, you know, mocking me. <laughs> and I said, really, lamps fascinating? I think they're fascinating. And they said, no, that should be really interesting. Uh, 
my approach to these behind the ropes tours have been what they tell us about what was going on on a kind of a global level uh, during the day. And uh, the, the focus I'm coming from with the, with the lighting tour um, is that in 1784, people were basically lighting their house exactly the way they had during the Stone Age. And in 1784, a, uh, a Swiss chemist named Ami Argon invented the first oil lamp that would be recognizable to us today. It had a wick, it had a font that was filled with burning fluid. Uh, it had a chimney around the wick and it looks, you know, we look at it today and we recognize it as a lamp. Before that, there was nothing. And from 1784 on, there was this huge competition amongst inventors and uh, manufacturers of different kinds of lighting fluids and people who were trying to produce a, the newer and better and best and latest lamp. And 98 years later in 1882, Edison flicks a switch on Pearl Street and there's electric lighting in people's houses. And in a hundred years, we go from really the, the, the cave age, the ice age to something that we would absolutely recognize today. And when you think about how just the fact that you could, for the first time, really light your house effectively so that you could continue your activities, your productivity, uh, your, your diversions into the darkness and just ex extend your, your, your day. As I tell people, I said, you watch this video and you will never look at a light switch the same way again. And I use lighting fixtures in the museum's collection to, uh, as my starting off point for all of this, because the Treadwells were wealthy. They were into latest developments. There's, uh, for instance, there's one lamp that's located in the, um, in the family room. And uh, I collaborated on this video with a very, very well-known uh, antiques dealer, Carswell Rush Berlin, who is internationally known as both an expert in early 19th century American furniture and 19th century lighting devices. We had a great time working on this. And when we got to the lamp in the family room, we literally took it apart, trying to figure out what it was. Uh, Carly had never seen a lamp like this before. And um, he, I would defer to him on all things, when it comes to lighting. And we finally figured out that uh, it was a lamp invented by a very obscure man named uh, Francis de Caravanen, uh, who hailed probably from France and lived in New York for a few years. We found a couple of patents by him, very obscure gentleman. And he created a lighting fixture where you wound up a key in the base and there was like this little clockwork mechanism like you'd see in like one of those little old fashioned metal wind up toys. And it powered a little fan in the base of the lamp that sort of created a column air, blew a, a column of soft air around the wick. So you didn't need a chimney anymore. You didn't have to put a, a glass chimney around the wick to create this current, this column of heated air. And we're just marveling at this thing because completely unheard of. The patent is filed in the U.S. Patent Office for February of 1863. He had never seen one before or even heard of it 
So there's this lamp that's innocently been sitting in the family room of the house for how many years? And suddenly we figure out that you will probably never see another one of these anywhere. And rather than talking, my focus is rather than talking about the family and how they gathered around this lamp, which is very interesting, but why would a family care enough about buying a lamp that didn't require a glass chimney to go out and get this kind of newfangled gimmicky lamp? And it brings you so much closer to the people of the time because you realize we're doing this all the time ourselves. You know, the, the newest and the, the, the latest and the greatest. And it's like, we're trying to keep up or get a little ahead of other people. Look what we got sort of thing. And people weren't any different in 1863. That's fantastic. So December 2nd, this launches right on the site. Correct. December 2nd, you have to buy your ticket in advance. You just go to the merchant's house, uh, merchantshouse.org and you can purchase your ticket. Ultimately, uh, there are going to be uh, available for subscription pay-per-view, but right now uh, we're launching it on December 2nd, and then it's gonna go to sleep through the holidays and reappear some point in 2021. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this, and we are running out of time, but I have to ask you about the ghosts because this is such a great house. Some folks just never wanna leave, right? Ghosts? What ghosts? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, oh, I don't know. The New York Times has dubbed it Manhattan's most haunted house. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, <laughs> we will never say, come right out and say the house is haunted until Gertrude comes walking down the staircase, has a conversation with us, and we record it on some sort of recording device so we can prove that it really happened. But I am now senior member of the, uh, of the the core of staff and volunteers at the museum, because I've just simply lasted longer than anybody else has. And they seem to like me. I don't know who they are, but they seem to like me because I have had a goodly number, like I would say probably about a dozen things happened to me over the years that I've been involved in the house, beginning with the very first thing that ever happened to me happened way back in 1989. And uh, I was just a punk kid at the time. And um, Joe Roberto had asked me to um, serve as site manager on a Sunday afternoon. And when I was closing the house up, it was in October of 1989, October 8th to be specific, if I remember correctly. And I was closing up the house and um, I peeked into Mrs. Treadwell's bedroom which is the room in the back of the master bedroom floor. And everything was just as it should be. Lights on, windows open, doors open. I went and closed the front of the house, walked back into her bedroom, and it didn't occur to me that the door that had been opened was now closed. It just, I wasn't paying attention. But these were in the days when I was kind of nervous to be in the house by myself. Because uh, there were always eerie feelings there. And I opened the door and the room was completely shut up. The windows were closed, the shutters were bolted, the lights were turned off, and the doors to the room were closed when they had not been. Uh, I totally freaked out, I, I think anybody would have. And, and the funny thing is, 20 years later, uh, 2009, almost to the day, just a couple months after the fact, it was 
our ho holiday party for 2009. And um, one of our volunteers who was dressed as Gertrude, a petite, just wonderfully charming young woman uh, said, Anthony, I can't reach the top shutters. Could you help me close up? And we walked into the room and it was ditto exactly the same thing that happened 20 years before. And I just remember her standing there and tears were streaming down her face. And she was stuttering because she just, she couldn't get a coherent sentence out of her mouth. And I was standing there laughing because I said, oh, been there, done that. There's a lot of things that go on in the house that we can't explain. And because of the ongoing paranormal investigations that we've been conducting with Dan Sturgis ever since 2007, we've made a, a, you know, a complete U-turn and have gone from being kind of really nervous and afraid of what might happen to walking in the front door and saying good morning to the family. When we leave, we say good night to them. We thank them for sharing their home with us. We have uh, recordings of voices coming out of empty rooms. We have a really eerie photograph of a man standing in front of a mirror and there was nobody in the room when the photo was taken. And so I didn't just say the house was haunted, but I certainly didn't say it wasn't. It is a glorious house, so I do not blame Seabury, Treadwell, or anyone who spent time in that house to stay in that house forever. I love visiting that house. I will be back to that house very soon. Anthony, a pleasure to have you. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, George. Thank you so much, and thank you for your support of the Merchant's House Museum. Anthony Belov is a longtime volunteer and board member of the Merchant's House Museum. Once again, more information about the museum and its programming can be found at merchantshouse.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Our producer is Maddie Bristow. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening.